This morning's chapel speaker really needs no introduction, but for those of us who are guests, I'm going to do a quick read. Dr. LaFountain has taught in Eastern Nazarene College AGS program since 97 and full-time in the undergraduate program since 2003. He's also been a corporate and hospital chaplain. He served 11 years as senior pastor of the Emanuel Church of Nazarene in Pawtucket, Rhode Island. Professor LaFountain, he received his doctorate of theology degree uh, from Boston University, and his dissertation was entitled The Narratives of Holiness Identity, the Sanctified Person in the Church of the Nazarene. His interests are very broad, but to name a few, it's in Wesleyan confessional theology, narrative theology, post-liberal theology, theological ethics, cognitive science, and sociology of knowledge. Uh, He lives in Attleboro with his wife, how do you say her name? Rodora, thank you. Um, he's got three children. Can we welcome him as he comes to chapel this morning? Well, it's always good to be a part of the community of faith and to speak into the dynamic life of our school here and our faith commitment. Welcome to guests who are with us today. Uh, I'll say a word about that a little bit later in the message. Um, but uh, I would put a plug in. I do have some varied interest and have been working on an earthquake detector and a seismograph, be presenting uh, a presentation next week on that. So I would expect all of you to be there next week, okay? Since Schrader S15. Uh, looking forward to that. But I do have a lot of interest. Um, my wife's parents, my wife is named Rodora after the poem by Ralph Waldo Emerson called The Rodora. And when I proposed to my wife and I asked permission from her parents, the demand was that I memorize and recite to them the poem. Uh, Ralph Waldo Emerson's poem, The Rodora. So I had to do, they made me do that. I had to do that. Uh, so I thought it was interesting. And it was worth it all. It was worth all that time. But, uh, you know, like you, I like movies. You like movies? I think you are a movie generation. You know, I, I had to grow up. I had to be accustomed to movies. But I love movies, you know, just for entertainment, but also for a lot of the moral and ethical kind of dilemmas that we face in our world. And uh, some of my favorites are Apollo 13, Anybody watch that one? Oh, the Tom Hanks character, Jim Lovell. I mean, you watch the movie just to see Jim Lovell. One of my favorite is the movie Gettysburg. I mean, if only for the acting of Martin Sheen as General Robert E. Lee in that movie is tremendous. One of my favorite philosophical movies is called The Matrix. That rich sort of philosophical one, you know, Neo's my hero and all that stuff, you know. But I love how they depict reality and how uh, we might be able, we might construct a reality that we live in. It's not really real. I love thinking about all those kinds of things. A challenging one that I've recently watched is a bo- The Boy in the Striped Pajamas. Have you seen that one? And, of course, a classic, classic movie, 1984. A, I love the, sort of the older cinematic presentation of George Orwell's sort of totalitarian dystopia. And I love thinking about utopias and dystopias, you know, how we as human beings construct and create a world for ourselves. An older movie that goes way back, H.G. Wells' Time Machine, uh, that's kind of dated, you know, I watched it as a kid, but it's still really good. And of course, one of my all-time favorites, Rob Reiner's The Princess Bride. Have you seen that? Yeah. (laughs) You know? And uh, probably, if I've used... More illustrations from that movie and sermons, it's appropriate, right, you know? It's just a great movie, and I love it, and I, I always cry at the right scenes and all that stuff, you know, and I like the sword play and all that. 
Um, but another one that's really challenging, maybe you've not watched, but it's really interesting, and you might have something to say to us today in our world, is the movie Gattaca. Have you seen that one? Sort of the idea that we can do some genetic testing and sort of uh, investigate the, the uh, genetic uh, predispositions of people, you know, and how in Gattaca you get this stratified society, you know, it's quite fascinating where insurance companies and businesses don't want to take risk on those who have these genetic predispositions to illnesses or diseases, and so then underclasses develop and shape powerful, many other movies that we engage in in our world today. And I use a lot of those clips and stuff in classes. I, other faculty members do it too, as well. And one class that's taught in the summertime, a living issues class, is framed sort of around uh, media in some way. Clips, uh, I show a, a, a scene from uh, Rod Serling's Twilight Zone, you know, called The Shelter. A lot of interesting stuff. Um, Henry Fonda, 12 Angry Men, about a jury trial. And we get it. We love this kind of stuff. And it, it, it sort of entices us, but also challenges us and many others that we like. Well, one of my all-time favorite, and I've always wanted to sort of preach a sermon or a dialogue or some kind of a talk around the movie Saving Private Ryan. You guys see that one? So look, just a warning, a spoiler alert, okay? You know, uh, we're going to talk about the movie in detail and if you haven't watched the movie, shame on you. It came out in 1998. You know, what are you waiting for? Uh, but, I, but I get it. Not everybody likes war movies. But, and it does depict uh, e events during World War II. But this morning, I'd like to weave my comments and my exhortation, really that's what it is today, around three clips from that movie as we look at a particular character. You know, I thought about... You know, what kind of title do I give my message today? And I, I realized that I've discovered a really creative title to my message. I'm calling it Saving Private Ryan. <laughs> you know? So, pretty creative, right? Uh, but notice the scare quotes there. Saving Private Ryan. I want to come back to that idea. And I'm thinking about the redemption the salvation, uh, the awakening even of this guy who is the main character in Saving Private Ryan. Well, I consider him one of the main characters, okay? So let's watch that opening scene of the movie Saving Private Ryan. And you'll see the elderly Ryan walking in his old age. He's going to the National Cemetery, and he's going to walk in this array of crosses, memorials, looking for just the right one. Watch his face. Pay close attention to his eyes as we think about this first clip. What a powerful way to open a movie. In the opening scene, we see this elderly James Francis Ryan walking in the National Cemetery where the dead in battle are memorialized. And he meanders his way through this array of crosses laid out along the green lawn and shuffling, driven even to one particular memorial. When he finds the memorial he, he's looking for, he collapses in anguish before it and breaks down in tears. And the clip ends with this haunting camera shot focusing on the anguished eyes of Ryan. But here's my question. Why the anguish? 
Why the struggle? What has happened in his life? In this elderly age who makes his way back, what events transpired in his life to engage him in this moral struggle? The struggle of life. And we see it in his eyes. I will never forget the look in those eyes of anguish, pain even in some way. I want to talk more about that. So we're going to watch the second scene. So the second scene, the clip from the movie, depicts one of the most poignant events I know of in movie history. The death of Captain John Miller, who's assigned to send a patrol into France to locate and rescue Private James Ryan and return him to safety. The military hierarchy had learned that James was one of four brothers and his three other brothers were killed in battle. So when they discover this, they devise an operation to send a team in to rescue him and to return him to safety and return him to his family. But along the way, this Captain John Miller and his team, as they endeavor to find and locate Private Ryan, the movie depicts a series of excursions along the way in which Miller and his men are pitted in battle against the German enemy who had already established a firm hold in France. Three of Miller's men died as they searched for Ryan. And as each man died, the troop becomes more embittered against Ryan and begin to rebel. This foolishness, this crazy endeavor to find one man in France and to send him home, that's stupid. Miller himself struggles to control his own men his own body, and his emotional stability. Finally, locating Ryan, who refuses to leave his troops, Miller and his men participate in the attempt to defend a bridge against the German attack. And ultimately, in the end, as the scene depicts, even Captain John Miller loses his life. In my mind, a heroic an exemplary example of behavior and devotion to duty. In this very poignant scene, Captain John Miller, sitting wounded and gasping for breath, draws Ryan to him and speaks into his ear, earn this, earn it. And we know what he means. Earn this sacrifice. Five men died for you. To get you home. What kind of life will you live now in light of that sacrifice? Do something in your life. Make this sacrifice have meaning, he says. In these words, earn this. Earn this sacrifice. Become somebody whose life is shaped by these losses. I don't know about you. Maybe your mind is already racing ahead. I'm not always the sharpest pencil in the box. But in my mind, as I think about this movie uh, clip, I draw what I think is a pretty natural example or analogy. And I think the analogy for us as believers is somewhat obvious. And maybe you see where I'm going. You see, I believe that in the same way Private Ryan attempts to live out his life 
as some kind of a valid response to the sacrifices of these men, men that he did not know, to rescue him in a way that he could not rescue himself. They saved him in a way that he could not do himself. And that kind of life, that kind of sacrifice, demands a certain kind of response, valid in some way. So how do we as Christians, followers of the Christ, live out our lives as some kind of response to God's grace in us? These biblical passages, this cluster of passages, get at a theological idea that's a part of our Christian story. Now, the verses themselves indicate the flow or the thrust of the passage. As various writers, the writer of Ephesians, Paul in Colossians, then Paul in 1 Thessalonians, which I think probably is one of Paul's earliest letters. But notice the language. I want you to sort of, sort of draw your attention to this. So the writer of, of Ephesians in chapter 4, verse 1, writes these words to Christians, believers. He says, I urge you or exhort you. To exhort is to, is, is to call to account vigorously and, uh, and, uh, uh, and with gusto. I call you, I urge you to live a life worthily of the calling you have received. And of course, as Christians, we're called to be believers. We're all part of a calling. We all have a calling in our lives to participate in the divine life of God, to reach out and to grasp that, to be grasped by God in, in the same way, and to respond to the sacrifice that God has offered. But to live worthily of that calling, an intriguing word, right? Colossians 1, verses 9 through 10 we also, Paul says, do not cease praying that you will be filled with the knowledge of God's will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding so that you walk worthily of the Lord. I don't know about you, but man, I tremble when I hear those words. To walk worthily of the Lord? How do you do that? And then in 1 Thessalonians where he talks to these, these baby Christians they're probably no more than three months old. What can you expect from babes in Christ? What can you expect from a three-month-old Christian? And Paul has the audacity to write these words to babes in Christ. I urge you to live lives worthy of God. Woo! I tell you, folks, that's got me peaked here, you know? And I'm not going to jump over that altar, but if it was high up here, I would. Man... So let's focus for a few moments on what I think is very challenging theological language. I doubt, there may be somebody, but I doubt that any of these verses are anyone's life verse, right, you know? We don't tend to be drawn to these kinds of passages, right? We're hesitant. We're maybe even a little timid, you know. Well, what does that mean? I don't know. To live a life worthily of God, worthy of the gospel, worthy of Christ's death on the cross? I can't even imagine what that might look like. I wonder about that. Why can't we imagine that kind of life? Why can't we imagine a life worthy of God? So I want to talk a bit more about the root idea here. And I'm not trying to do any... Uh, sort of um, 
I'm not saying the word means the same thing in every context, but words have meaning only in context. But the, as it plays out, if you were to look at the rhetorical flow, if you were talking about the narrative flow of these passages, you would discover that this word here is an adverb. It, it describes a verbal idea, an action idea. Live worthily. Live your life of God worthily. Live out in a worthy manner. So the idea is to weigh or to, to assign a matching value. Worth for worth, right? Christ's death, ah, your life. Christ's death, your life. Worth for worth. Something worthy, weighing as much as, of like value, befitting. Something that's congruous, right? Something that matches that idea. Christ's death, your life. Christ's death, your life. God's gift, your life. It's corresponding to that reality. And I like the word commensurate. A life that's lived in relationship to that dynamic of God's offer of sacrifice, of love and forgiveness and redemption. But what is that life? I want to talk more about that. The theological idea that flows out of this. Living a life worthy. A response that's worthy to God's great sacrifice. But I wonder, folks, this question. Are we not faced with exactly the same question that Private Ryan is faced with? Here's the dead body of Captain John Miller, one of five men who gave their lives for his safety. He stands before the dead body of Captain Miller, and he is awakened to a new reality. He's awakened to the moral demand on his life. What will it cost him now? What kind of life will he live? That interesting and intriguing dilemma. You may, if you analyze the movie, recognize that Captain John Miller is the Christ figure in the movie. His ultimate sacrifice of his death All he wants to do is to return home to his wife and to teaching school. That's all he wants to do. And yet he does his duty. He's faithful in that. And as the Christ figure, not only is he the ultimate sacrifice, but all the men that he leads, the whole troop that he guides, they have moral flaws if you were to analyze the movie, each one of them, that is supplemented by the moral virtue of Captain John Miller. He is the Christ figure in this movie. He supplements the gaps in his own people. He leads with humility. He leads with courage. And ultimately, for the sake of Private Ryan, is even willing to give up his own life so that Private Ryan could be saved. Final scene. Return to Private Ryan at the cemetery. Listen to what he asks his wife. Curious. Citizens of a grateful nation, and wishing you good health and many years of happiness with James at your side. Nothing, not even the safe return of a beloved son, can compensate you or the thousands of other American families who have 
suffered great loss in this tragic war. And I might share with you some words which have sustained me through long, dark nights of peril, loss, and heartache. And I quote, I pray that our Heavenly Father may assuage the anguish of your bereavement and leave you only the cherished memory of the loved and lost and the solemn pride that must be yours to have laid so costly a sacrifice upon the altar of freedom. Abraham Lincoln, yours very sincerely and respectfully, George C. Marshall, General Chief of Staff. with you, I, I wouldn't sure how I'd feel coming back here. Every day, I think about what you said to me that day on the bridge. I've tried to live my life the best I could. I hope that was enough. I hope that at least in your eyes, I earned what all of you have done for me. James? Captain John H. Miller. The final scene, the final clip, returns to the National Cemetery, and Ryan bends down near Miller's memorial, weeping clearly in agony, doubtful and scared. The elderly Ryan, having lived his life every day in remembrance of the sacrifice of Miller and his men, grasps for assurance that his life meant something, that that was a plausible life to be given in uh, in response to this sacrifice. And finally, in desperation, he virtually begs of his wife, tell me I'm a good man. Tell me I've lived a good life. It's interesting to me that Ryan interprets the response, the necessary response, as a moral response. Tell me that I've been a good man in response to this sacrifice. 
Ryan correctly interprets what's expected of him, a response to the sacrifice of life as a moral response. And we get it. Great sacrifice without authentic response is morally empty. Great sacrifice without authentic response is morally empty. Yet in spite of the powerful emotional and ethical effects, I'm left wondering, we are left wondering, what kind of life is worthy of the death of five men, and especially the death of the Christ figure, Captain Miller? How did Ryan know what a good life looked like? How did he know what goodness meant? And unfortunately, at this point, the movie is of little help in discerning the good life. Ryan is abandoned to his own devices, left anguished, left searching. The movie, I think, participates in our cultural ambiguity, uh, the loss of the meaning of good. And Ryan is left to interpret the good in his own individualistic and even in some way materialistic life. The clues we get are they tried to be a good father to his children, a good husband to his wife, even if we extended that out in speculation to imagine he tried to be excellent at his job, although that's just speculation. While the movie fails to answer the question of the good, it raises the question for us. Suppose someone gave their life for you. What kind of life would you consider a valid moral response? If Ryan were an axe murderer or cheated on his taxes, or failed to provide for his family, or cheated on his wife, or was lazy and irresponsible. Wouldn't you be justified in calling him to account? Hey, Ryan, what do you think you're doing, you bum? Those guys died for you, and you live like this? We get it. We would think the worst of Ryan. But what if he was just a good man? I mean, in the cultural sense of the word conforming to the values of our culture, dutiful at his job, providing for his family, honest on his taxes, and all that other stuff. Would that, would that kind of life be a valid response to this sacrifice? What's the content of the good that Ryan so desperately hopes that he has achieved? Ah, but what about you? What is the good life for you. What kind of life do you think is an appropriate response to the sacrifice of God? I have entitled the message Saving Private Ryan. Of course, in the movie, the uh, movie depicts the rescue out of battle and the saving physically of Ryan. But I think there's a deeper meaning to the movie that is pertinent to us. His awakening When he stands before the dead body of Miller, he is awakened to his moral obligation. Did it begin with the death of those men? Did it begin with the death of Miller? I don't think so. I think the moral obligation on his life persisted even before that. It was already there, but he was awakened to it by the death of these men. That, I think, is the salvation of Private Ryan. To be awakened to the moral demands on our lives. To engage 
in the agony of the moral life. And Ryan is right. Ryan is right to look outside of himself for the good. He asked his wife, tell me I'm a good man. Tell me I've lived a good life. That is a good move. The Christian truth is that we are empty vessels as human beings. We don't have a core morality. Human autonomy is an idol of our age, a god to be denied. Certainly the good cannot be found in human autonomy, autonomy, autonomos, one's own law, our own law. We call that original sin in the Christian life. But what about you today? Are you saved? Are you awakened to the moral demands on your own life that have been laid on you even before you were awakened? But where will we find the answers to this? What are the theological underpinnings of a life in response to God? What shape does this take? If not the results of autonomous individuality, how does the community of faith contribute to this worthy life? Christ, I believe, has not abandoned us. I will never leave you nor forsake you, he says. I know we have some guests here today. We're probably coming close to the end. 20 after. He's going, yeah, he's going, yeah, yeah, yeah. Would you stand with me, please? So we've come close to the end. Thank you for your patience. But I'm asking this question of you and our guests. Thank you, folks, for being with us today. Thank you, guests. But remember that it's a two-way mirror. While you are looking in at us, we are also looking at you and wondering if you, too, are willing to give your life over to the moral endeavor to pursue with us at ENC the content of that good life What does it mean to live a life worthily of the gospel of Christ? If you want to know what ENC is all about, what all our classes that lie behind our classes, everything we do, it's about that question. And we are giving our life's blood to find an answer together in community. Will you join us? We will call you to that in every single class you have with us whether it's mathematics or chemistry or history or biology or the social sciences or literature, we will call you to give an answer to that. What is your response to the sacrifice of God? Let it be our task to seek out the answer to that together. Amen? And now may the God who sent his own son to die on the cross as sacrifice for sin empower you and awaken you to the moral demands on your life. And then may he give you the power to live it out. In Jesus' name, amen.